Welcome to episode 66 of Probably Polly, the podcast where we question everything, even our name. As always, I am your host, Michael Higg. And I'm your co-host, Mandy Conant. And this week, we are very lucky to be joined by Crystal Bird Farmer. Yay! And Crystal, you're promoting your new book, The Token, is that right? Yes. All right, well, do you want to introduce yourself and then also tell us a little bit about the book? Yeah, so my name is Crystal Bird Farmer. My pronouns are she, her, and I wrote a book mainly for leaders of organizations, but really anybody who has ever thought of the question, how do I get my my group, my community, the people that I know to be more diverse. And so this book is is helping you to take those steps to think about what diversity means and how to bring it into your organization. Can you tell us a little bit about where you think this book is positioned? Is this the kind of book that you would do to get your toes wet for the first time working on diversity? Or is this for people who've been in diversity work for a while or communities that have tried other things in the past and then it hasn't worked out for them? Or how do you see this book fitting in? Yeah, I think it works for both groups. It, you really do need a little bit of understanding and, and and um, acknowledgement of the problem with diversity, you know, knowing that we right. may not have enough people with disabilities or Black people, you know, you know that diversity is something that you want. So you have to approach it that way. You can't be um, a racist person thinking, oh, well, they just need to do more work and get into my organization. That's very understandable. It's awesome to get to talk to you again. It's been a couple of years since you were, you were opening speaker at APW some years back. I was, yeah. You were. It was awesome. APW has opening speakers. I'm a bad conference <laughs> attender. I've never been to the opening ceremonies or the closing ceremonies. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun <laughs> and just kind of everybody hanging out. So. It was a lot of fun. I will tell you that as the director, I was not ready for how fluid the room needed to be. I might have been there for this. It was the one where like we got separated yeah. out by categories and stuff like that. I think actually yeah. I, I was wrong. I did attend an opening speech. Look at me. <laughs> Yeah, it was great. And it was really neat to see the, the movement in the room and the difference, you know, places that it took people. And so it was, it was a really cool exercise. The diversity thing, because it had people kind of showing their different opinions about things. It did. It was really, really neat. And you, there were definitely times where you would, you would ask us, you know, go to this side of the room for this, or this side of the room for this. And it was kind of like, wow, I didn't expect, I didn't expect there to be anybody on the other side of the room for that question. And, you know, and there were like, there were, there were political questions that she asked and it was just like what i also seem to remember some people who just like sort of wander to the middle on some of those questions yeah be like, i refuse <laughs> i am both or neither or where would you or raise their hand where would you like me i don't know that i fit into one of these categories right it was it was a really cool exercise and i personally got a lot out of it even though i was on my knee scooter still at the time so i'm mm -hmm. like trying to knee scoot through the chairs and stuff like i said i wasn't prepared for how fluid the room needed to be <laughs> It was bad setup on my part. I take I take full responsibility for that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so so in writing this book, then you you have that experience going to conferences and speaking and and especially poly conferences, I would imagine. So was was the poly community was this something that you thought of when you were writing this book? Yeah, I really wrote this book for a lot of the communities that I've been a part of um, and for the people that I've met at conferences. I wanted them to recognize that 
that, you know, diversity is a problem in the poly community. And the only other book that I've seen about it is Kevin Patterson's Love's Not Colorblind. So this is kind of mm-hmm. like, you know, the next step in that process for community. Yeah, we love Kevin Patterson's book. And, and I know, personally speaking, APW, we struggled with diversity. And I struggled as a director trying to rectify that. So I'm, I'm really glad that you wrote this book and I'm I'm getting a lot out of it. So uh, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. I mean, I know you want everybody to get all of the points out of the book, but are there some key factors that you want to talk about? Um, yeah. So in the book, I talk about kind of the three main things that you need to know about diversity. Um, and that's the idea of privilege, implicit bias, and microaggressions. So I, I talk a little bit about what those mean and how they play out in different communities. And then um, the second part of the book is, what is the second part of the book about? The workbook, the workbook part of the book, it has exercises you can do. (laughs) The second part of the book is actually taking people through the process of doing what I call the work is helping people to um, to get together with people in their community and talk to people who are the tokens in their community and get feedback from them. And then the third part of the book is really basic, simple, easy to do. Well, okay, easy to start to do ideas for your meetings and your meeting space and how to conduct those. Conceptually easy, potentially emotionally and resistance hard. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's difficult. Oh, uh, also, you just said the sentence, the tokens in your community. And in the book, you have this great disclaimer where you say people may not want to identify this way. I don't necessarily think that people always think of this as positive. But given the purposes of the book's lexicon, token means, and we're not using it offensively here, I think we should probably, you want to give that? real quick here so that um well so that we can use that language which is very helpful but also make sure that nobody gets the wrong idea you don't want to get nasty emails so um i wrote you know i I picked the title with the idea that you know people are always looking to people to explain you know that experience to them of being a minority and i decided that i would rather them ask me you know about all of these experiences and to recruit their people you know all these things that go on to me just because i'm in the minority Mm -hmm. instead of going to the people in your community so in the book i say i'm your token you know here's all the things that I think. And then I go on to say, you have to recognize the people in your community that are the tokens. You know, you can't pretend that everybody's equal. Everybody's the same. You have to recognize there are some people who are having a different experience and those are your tokens. And you're not going to call them token to your face, their face, but you're going to talk to them and say, we really want to know how you experience our community. We want that feedback and then we want to do better. They're talking my function. Yes, by function. Yeah. Yeah. So this is one of those things where it's a fact that they are being tokenized, whether they would like to be or not. And that's the bad thing. But we're using the language here. And it's provocative, partly to get people's attention. You're more likely to see the book and read the book if you have this provocative title than if you have sort of a less. Yeah, I wasn't thinking of that at all, but I guess. No. <laughs> that works too, though. <laughs> well, because it's, it's very evocative of, of what it's about. Yeah. The title is about the problem of tokenization. And you read the title and you immediately know that that's the issue that you're hoping working on yeah yeah that's true just framed the book for me so now i can rewrite all my publicity you know, <laughs> <laughs> michael's good with words so <laughs> 
wordsing. It's my particular talent in life. <laughs> Where can you buy the book? How much does it cost? And do you have like a preferred method they buy? Because sometimes you can get it on Amazon, but you can get it from a, directly from the publisher. And I know the publisher right. has like an ecological mission and a humanitarian mission. So maybe buying it from them is better. Yeah. So the book was published by New Society Publishers, which is a Canadian company, and they do focus on sustainability. Um, and, you know, they have that mission. So you can buy the book anywhere that sells books. Um, they told me that there's like a, you know, database of books. And as long as you go to the bookstore and say, I want this book, they can look it up and ship it to you. Um, the publisher is selling it. List price is $14.99. Um, you can buy it directly from me on my website for like $12. <laughs> um, nice. already paid for. So, you know, whatever you want to do, whatever people want to do. And you have three five-star ratings on Amazon, just so you know. Really? Oh, I got to yeah. get that. I, <laughs> I'm not supposed to read reviews. Somebody told me that, you know, you don't want to read the reviews. Oh, you can read them if they're good. Yeah, it also depends on how you take them emotionally, for sure. <laughs> I mean, you don't want to read a bunch of reviews and get upset, but. I think you should absolutely read them if they're good. I'm not going to rewrite it. So, you know, I'll yeah. be okay with whatever people think of it. Right. And even in the book, I say that, you know, eventually it's going to be outdated, that people are going to say that the language is not, you know, PC or whatever. That I immediately got to the point on disability and went, that's not the right language to use. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, well. Well, it's especially funny because I know that you also identify as a person living with a disability. And I, I on the show, am consistently beating the drum to not use the word able-bodied, partly because I think I know all of my disabilities are hidden disabilities. And so I, I constantly get mislabeled as able-bodied because of the language. So I'll be at a, a conference and someone will go, you're so privileged, you're cis, you're white, you're able-bodied. And I'm like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> yeah. And also, I really do love the emphasis in non-disabled on the idea that society is what disables you or doesn't disable you. It's not it's not a fault in your makeup. It's a fault in the way that society privileges certain groups. It was just, that was one of those things that was funny because you had already said, like, how, so I was like, wait, and I was like, wait. Hmm. Which... <laughs> already forgiven for it because I put a disclaimer. <laughs> no, it's a good disclaimer. It is still the governmental language. And in, in America, it's still the primary language of the feminist movement, although that's something that people in the disability community are generally working on. So I understand mm -hmm. using the most recognizable language, even if it's like my personal crusade to change that language, because it's... It's already completely adopted that way in Europe, and in America, we're just sort of slow at everything. We're always like two steps behind being and nice. Always a couple of steps behind pop culture too. So it takes sure. to like internalize language changes, like the whole idea about being autistic versus a person mm -hmm. with autism. You know, I've had to decide that I'm okay with that because before it's like oh, it doesn't make a big difference to me, but now I'm mm -hmm. trying to, to recognize that it's important to people, so I'm going to use it that way. Yeah, growth in language is important. I swear, at this point, I because I do a show where I'm talking i like every week i have to spend like two hours randomly googling whatever the topic is language i'm like what am i supposed to say when i talk about this group so that i don't i don't get it wrong which another one that came up that was fascinating was you use the term standard english in the book and I, my brain immediately said so I, I always call that on this show if you've heard me say the title newscaster or midwestern english is what I yeah. will refer to that accent as, the Midwestern accent or the newscaster accent. And I, again, I use that language particularly to highlight the fact that it that it's a specific dialect so that you don't think it's better. And so I looked it up because I was originally sort of knee-jerk response to that. And it turns out that they have, linguists have relabeled that accent the standard accent. So you were right, and I am two steps behind. Oh. Although I'm probably still going to use the way that I say it because I want to bring attention to... So linguists have been pushing for that change, but there's pushback because when you say standard, 
standard English, it makes it sound like, even though it's not correct, quote unquote, standard sounds like the word correct it yeah. definitely does. in English. And standard is actually the the slightly better version of proper English. The much better version of proper English. They originally wanted to call it general American English, general American accent. And so they changed it to standard American accent, but it is collectively the group from the Midwestern zones, specifically the North Midland, Western New England, and Western accents. So Midwest was about right, which is my general collection of terms for that. And then also the newscaster accent. It's what they make you learn if you go into the news so that you sound acceptable to people. I appreciated that you used that you put the proper in parentheses because I did like so that. many people People think that that's proper, and I'm using air quotes, proper English. And the parentheses, I believe, actually said not proper. So not meaning proper. Yeah, the parentheses actually said not proper. It said standard parentheses, not proper. I was coming right. at it from the, the AAVE or African-American vernacular right. English, yes. where, you know, people are like, oh, well, white English is the standard versus right. Black. When I used to teach argumentative ethics, I had to do a class every year on accents. And specifically, I was dealing primarily with AAVE, specifically that one, they would go, well, why can't they just learn to speak the right way and I'd be like that's that is the right way it's it's an accent just like your accent it's one of the things that makes me want to punch people in the throat it's one of those triggers for me that makes me want to punch people in the throat I actually found something much more satisfying than throat punching my students Which was that I realized that most people don't have a perfect Midwestern accent. Right. So if you wait, just wait for them to say something incorrectly and go, oh, you didn't say it this way. And they'll go, yeah, but you knew what I meant. And I'll go, oh, is that what counts as language? Well, then I guess I don't understand why you're upset about this. And they'll go, wait. They'll be like this mind blown moment. Just just wait for your opportunity. Anybody that tells you the accent is wrong, just wait for them to do a reversal or when they say something shorthand and then be like, correct them. And they'll be like, that's just being semantic. You knew what I meant. And I was like, well, (laughs) then you now understand how accents work. Now you took away my throat punch moment. Damn it. (laughs) So that's too much work for me. I'd better go with ignoring them. Oh, well, that's fine too. I was just responding to Mandy trying to throat punch people. (laughs) Potentially not the best approach. (sighs) Yeah, yeah. I have a question because as I was reading it, I've actually, I actually came across in the microaggressions part. Mm-hmm. There's a whole chapter on microaggress- microaggressions or it's just a compliment. And you have a pretty extensive list of things that are microaggressions that I would say non-marginalized people, or we'll just go with white folks right now, <laughs> think are compliments or would not see them as microaggressions. One of them that was on here, I'm I'm guilty of it as of recently. So I wanted to ask you how I could do this differently because it was genuinely from a place of, I didn't want to fuck up. I met a new uh, softball family. My daughter plays travel softball and we came across a new softball family and the mom had told me her name while a lot was going on. I'd seen it written and then I went to say hello to her to the next time and I didn't want to mispronounce her name because like I said, a lot of stuff was going on when we were introduced and the way it was written, it could, could have been said and actually I've heard it said multiple different ways. So I said, can you tell me how to pronounce your name again mm-hmm. and I never once thought of it as a microaggression and that's one of the things that you have listed there so where did I go wrong and how could I have done that better uh, I don't think you necessarily went wrong so right now I'm working with a group of black indigenous and people of color who are looking at forming intentional communities 
And so it's a bunch of people of color, it's a bunch of black people, and we all have names, obviously. <laughs> Some of them have names where, you know, they have to pronounce it. And so the meeting is is us a lot of times saying, did I pronounce that right? Can you tell me again? Um, it's not a microaggression always to ask, how do I pronounce your name? But you have to think of how many times has that person been asked to say their name in a day, in a week? Right. If they're in, if they're a new person to a group, then probably everybody's going to be asking that. And that really does take an emotional toll. And it's, it's not fun. And, um, you know, since I have a really American, you know, kind of standard name, you know, I, I don't experience that. But what I've heard from people is that it's very tiring. And sure. we would really like you to learn how to pronounce it and then pronounce it right. Um, so I think I think it's OK to say, you know, please tell me how you pronounce your name. You know, try and commit it to memory. If you slip up, you know, just apologize. If you really can't remember, just ask again, you know, but you're still having an impact on that person because you're you're you're, you're pointing out their identity as something as something with a name that you you don't get doesn't come easy. I should have tried harder to listen when she told me her name the first time and to really commit it to memory, like you said. You know, that first time you meet somebody, they, you know, they're really making an effort to to try and, and show who they are. And, you know, if you have to say it a couple of times, you know, I think that that's a lot more helpful than coming back, you know, a week later and saying, just, you know, I forgot. Sorry. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Because I did. I was, I was reading and I was like, oh, I fucked up. I just did that like last week. <laughs> how, I don't know how I did, how I, how I screwed up and how I could have done that differently. And I don't know. So that was, that's great information. Yeah. And that's yeah. the kind of the, the gray lines with, with these things is that it's microaggressions are personal harms, you know, and it's going to affect each person differently. It's going to depend on what they've been through, you know, and what they're going through right now as to how it affects them. You definitely have a couple of different points where you talk about walking this fine line because there's also the issue of, you know, a lot of the book is about don't treat people differently or with kid gloves if you want them to feel comfortable. But at the same time, there are harms that you should put the extra work in to avoid in the first place. So you know that it's more likely that people have asked this family their name over and over again. So when you hear a name that's hard for you, pay special attention to it at the beginning if you can, but also don't single them out and treat them strangely, like overly introducing them with their name to everyone you meet in a way that you wouldn't do to other people. Like if you wouldn't normally introduce your friends three times names to somebody, don't do that with this right. new family just to help. So there's an interesting sort of back and forth because so obviously there are things where the microaggressions are intentional because you talk about a, a yeah. backhanded compliment being a microaggression. So there's obviously really intentional microaggressions, ones that are sort of universal. Your inspiration is one of the ones that's because clearly the fact that it's inspirational to do well as a person that is not white or as is has not whatever identity is obviously just sort of a universally negative implication yeah um, but then there are ones like the oh i'm sorry i forgot your name or even more fascinating of course miss identifying one person for another because we know from studies that all people are bad at identifying people out of their ethnic group so mm -hmm. if you have ever been the minority in an area people will do that to you as well which is yep. hilarious so you want to not do that but then there's also things like i have face and name blindness so i am pretty much always going to not know who someone is until like the seventh time i've met you and i'm never going to remember your name even if i've known you for a year i have a lot of friends on facebook that if they walked up to me in person i'd be like i'm sorry who are you and this is actually hey. happening at, at a poly meetup sure, sure. 
talking to and he was like hey i was like hi who are you and it was like, yeah. yes people have different capacities for remembering things and being able to do things but yeah there's a, definitely a difference between not having the ability to remember it or to do it well and then just not trying yeah right you know it's the theory of mind knowing how other people are going to perceive what you're doing so knowing that i'm in a group that only has a few members that are bipoc i should make the extra effort like write down a note wearing polka dots this is their name please don't forget who they are today because i understand that if i get it wrong and it is a person who's white, they're just going to assume that I got it wrong in a normal way. And if it's a person that's not, they might go, okay, well, maybe they just didn't care because I wasn't white for them. And so so taking care when you know that there's care. Another really great one I thought was safe spaces. You have a description about safe spaces and how people will say things. Why are we setting up a space that white people can't go? Isn't that racism or reverse racism? I talk about people who are in the minority creating a space where they can just be themselves and they don't have to look at, they don't have to be under the white gaze or be under the gaze of of whoever the privileged people are. And, you know, some people might say that that's reverse discrimination by, you know, kicking the, the white person out, but really it's a reclaiming of our space, of our time, of our identity, and a place where we can just process what we need to process without having to explain what's going on to somebody who is not clued in. Or, or think about yourself in the third person and worry that they're going to take it the wrong way or get upset or explode or yeah. The other thing that's interesting is people have to understand why exclusionary spaces are bad. You know, so you'll also have the opposite. They'll say, well, I get why we should have these non-white spaces. But we should also have some white spaces. And, and you're like, no, 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 no. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. You don't get it. You don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> You're missing an important element. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you have and you have this other section that I thought was really great that I just wanted to connect. In my mind, they connected where you talked about how people tend to network with people that look like them. So when, you, when people will say, well, I put out a call for BIPOC speakers at my conference and I just didn't get any. You're like, well, what did you do? Well, I posted on my Facebook page and my friend's Facebook page and my group Facebook page and we just got white people for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, white people seem to overestimate the number of people of color that they know. They 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 really don't know a whole lot of people. And when they when they post stuff like that, it, it's always like, okay, so you're probably reaching like you know five to ten percent of people who are not like you. So you really do right. have to kind of expand your yeah. networks when you're doing that. And there's a term for this. It's called resource closure. The primary mechanism yeah. for intergenerational wealth disparities is resource closure, which is a really fancy way to say people tend to give jobs and money to people they know, and they tend to know people that look like them. So having all white spaces is problematic because people come to those spaces and they share resources, and we have an unfair preponderance of the resources due to multi-generational exploitation of non-white people around the globe. So that's a problem. If people who are not white create a non-white space where they get together, they automatically have less resources to share. So they're not taking advantage of this resource surplus and keeping it inside their little group and not giving it away to anybody else. So they would never do that unless it served like a, a function that was healthy and mentally necessary and emotionally necessary and protective because it's it's not a way to steal wealth. Yeah. There are some, and I'm, I'm thinking mostly of black churches, there are some places where um, you're banding together to create wealth, to sure. take wealth away. But that's not a problem if you're below the median line though like they don't you're not having a group that's got this overwhelming power the world around right it would still be unethical to me because it's it's 
it's not it's not treating people with respect. It's saying that, oh, these white people, we're just going to get ours now because they've gotten theirs. And um, it's, it's exclusion, you know, and I know there's a mm-hmm. lot of people in the black community who are like that, like by only black, you know, only associate with black businesses. And I don't think that's a, a healthy way to relate with the world. That's fascinating. I've never had personally an, an issue with that because my sense is that if you are a black business, you already face the issue of less white people wanting to buy stuff from your shop automatically because white people have all these implicit biases. And I feel like because of the wealth disparities and because of the exploitational structure of, of our country, and especially the white-black dichotomy is, is stark, like one-tenth as much wealth on average in a black family than a white family, 70 cents on the dollar for earners, difficulties getting housing. Traditionally, black housing communities get lower value. If a new housing community is black, the value of the property goes down. All these things that make it very, very difficult to maintain and build generational wealth inside the American black community. It seems like any attempt to do that is never going to overbalance the scale beyond what's already happening the other direction. I don't know that it would overbalance the scale. It probably won't. It's probably just a a small part of the black community, but it's still not healthy. And this is something that Mm -hmm. comes up a lot in the black and poly community because, you know, there's there's these factions of people who do kind of want to build like rebuild black families and black wealth. And then there's people, Mm -hmm. you know, who date people who are not black and who are sharing, you know, income and all that stuff with other people. And, um, you know, that those those people who are black nation builders can be toxic Mm. and treat the world in a way that I don't think is going to be productive. They're just replicating the oppression that, you know, we've Mm -hmm. experienced as black people. They're replicating it within their own community. To clarify then, I got lost in the middle language of reverse discrimination because discrimination is about access to fair options for resources. And that's something that minority groups are not really structurally able to do because of reverse racism is the, the language I was using because of the way that the over society is set up. But yes, you can certainly create harmful, toxic, negative environments that are damaging for the people in them and reinforce racial stereotypes and other very negative things. And then especially the thing that you were talking about is, I think, also super toxic if it's policing other people's behavior. Like you shouldn't be dating white people, even if you want to, you're a bad person for is, is like the equivalent to within feminism, where they had the second wave feminists who are like, you can't be stay at home moms, you can't be a secretary, you can't be a teacher, you need to do jobs, you know, and they were they were dictating your life just as much as patriarchy was. Yeah. So no, you, I stand corrected. You, I mean that that is obviously quite harmful. I was trying to look at the the financial element. People will say it's unfair, and my point is it's not unfair. It shouldn't be done in an unhealthy way for sure, but it's not it's not unfair. It's not going to tip the scales outside of white privilege if a bunch of minority groups get together and share wealth. I'm fine with the no white sign. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> don't take that out of context. <laughs> I'm just going to take that and make that the stinger for the show. Yep. No, that's the headline. Something else that I I very much identified with in your book where I have found faults in things that I've done is um, when I first started organizing conferences, when I first started directing conferences, and it was brought to my attention that my presenter panel was not diverse. And I said, oh, okay. So next year, what I did was when I got all the applications in, I just didn't look at pictures. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, so if I don't look at pictures, (laughs) then I can't, you know, then I'm not seeing... 
you know, I, I mean, and of course there were names that were definitely more, uh-huh. you know, that, that identified with different ethnicities. And I tried really hard though to to just look at the topics and see what they were, were what they were bringing to the table, see the letters behind the names, see the experience that they had. And I thought that was enough. And it wasn't because I was still left with 20 white presenters and three people of color. And I was like, all right, fuck, what do I like? How do I fix this? And so then it, you know, somebody was kind enough to, to use the energy to explain it to me without me asking, which I appreciated though. I should, you know, at that point, I was kind of questioning myself and I didn't know who to go to. So I was really lucky that I had somebody go, hey, dumb bitch, listen to this. But I mean, I needed that. I needed that at the time. And they said, you're not, you're just putting out this broad, hey, presenters come apply. And you need to be putting it out in Black and Polly. You need to be putting it out in the Black kink communities and, mm-hmm. and things like that. And I was like, oh, there were little light bulbs. I should, I should be reaching out. Mm-hmm. Like you said, Michael, in my groups, it was all predominantly because in, in your basic poly groups, they're predominantly white. Yeah. And then even that's still not enough. I mean, you might be in a position where you can't do this because you're too new, you're too starting. But if you have money, for example, to help sponsor presenters because of, again, wealth disparities over multi-generational inequities, you need to offer what you can to help subsidize people's right. travel expenses and ability to make it to your conference to get the diversity that you need. And that was my next year. That was your next year? Right. My next step was... because. And I looked and I'm like, okay, so I've got like 17 white people now and five people of color. <laughs> like I'm, I'm moving in the right direction, but it's not quick enough for me. And it's not quick enough for my guests, my conference goers. And you're in Atlanta, Georgia, because uh, Crystal, you had a note that said you should be looking at trying to not use quotas, but get sort of close to the population balance in the area you're working. And yeah. downtown Atlanta is not is not 80% white, 90% white. It is not the demographic makeup of that area. (laughs) So that was my next, my next thing that someone so graciously told me without me asking, hey, dumb bitch, you got to get us there too. (laughs) Like we can't, we don't have that wealth. We don't have that privilege to be able to just like buy an airplane ticket or, you know, get a hotel room. You've got to help us out with this. You've got to get us there. You've got like you, you want us there. You got to get us there. And that was, oh, I need to be doing that as well. Shit. Like, and so it was, it it was a process. It was a, it was an absolute process for sure. I promise my next conference is going to be better. (laughs) (laughs) I'm learning. I'm learning as I'm going. So... Um, yeah, so so there's definitely still a need for affirmative action, and, and that's a really old term now. But you mm-hmm. know, you have to be proactive in reaching out to people yeah. of color and saying, "We yeah. want you to come. We want you represented." You know, you can't just expect them to come. You know, in in the job industry, you know, they call it the pipeline problem, where oh, maybe there's mm-hmm. not enough, you know, black and people of color. Um, but really, it's it's are people doing enough work to, to reach out and bring those people in? And then, yeah, definitely pay people or at least uh, provide as much support as you can to get them there. Yeah. Because I wasn't able to attend a single poly conference until I quit my job and became a freelancer. So, yeah. 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 So 
One thing I would like to ask, I'd like to ask about the exercises for a minute, because I, I love the exercises, partly because I didn't have to think of them. So <laughs> when I'm looking at how to work into the communities that I work into, I know that I have to put on eventually workshops and have people come out. So to have a workshop that goes, here's your first workshop, here's your second workshop, here's your third workshop, and I can just take that and go, okay, cool, cool. Uh, I will expand on this and then use it here. I am I am such a revisionist. So having the workshops written out is great because it, it gets through that huge block for me having to do it the first time and then know what I you know how to apply it to the community that I'm in. But I did notice that they do seem to be primarily for continuing communities. It would be hard to use them in a conference setting, for instance, because the amount of work that you would have to do in them would be like the whole conference. It would be like instead of having a conference, you would have this conference of workshops or something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, these are meant for home communities. Um, it's hard to to go somewhere and then learn about um, <laughs> racism and, you know, ableism and all that stuff, um, unless you're going to bring it back to your community. So the right. workshops and the discussion questions that I have in the book are for you to talk with the people that you already know. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I've gone to conferences and I've done the diversity talk, but I never get to see like, what's the impact of that? Because <laughs> yeah, yeah, the people yeah. coming to my talk are already like, yeah, I want to do this. This is great. Mm -hmm. You know, but then they have to go back and convince people that this is a good idea. This is something right. they should do. And that's really the hard work. So, it you is. know, conferences are great, but they're not going to fix everything. And then I also noticed that I missed, I missed one. If I missed one, please correct me. But I, the, in every exercise, it says, do you invite tokens? And in every exercise, it says no. So are there exercises that are like seven or eight down the list that would that the books just doesn't get to because it runs out of space, time to, to do the early exercises where you would invite those people or you just never ask those people to come to any of this stuff? Um, in the microaggressions section, there is a, I think it's either the microaggressions or the bias section. There is a ah. section... Yes. for the tokens to okay. talk and there's there's two parts to it there's one okay. where the tokens are are talking to the privileged people so they're explaining things for you know for people talking about their experience and this is what mm -hmm. you would see like as a diversity panel you know you know, have people come and talk about their experience and then there's a section where these tokens are talking just to the leadership about what's going on what's happened what do they need and that's really supposed to be like a confidential you know, um, kind of healing or at least, you know, mm -hmm. a, a, an exposing session so that the leadership can really understand what those people have gone through and what they need in order to feel like they're a part of the community. Implicit bias has a section that's questions for tokens. Mm -hmm. So there were things that, that talked about that, but I meant like the ones that, that said like, here is an exercise to do, here's a workshop to do. So there were things where you were involved working with tokens to prepare for the workshops in the book, but there was, I didn't see a workshop that was like, here's a workshop where you would, and I'm not saying they should, I was just curious because you have in each one if they should come, and in each one that's a workshop that I read, it said no. And so I thought that was just sort of an interesting. Is there one that says yes? <laughs> I don't think there is because- Okay, yeah, my, I got that right. <laughs> my, my idea was that whatever uh, identity that you're working around, those people with that with that different identity already know, and they don't necessarily need to be exposed to people who are learning about it. So if I'm black um, and white people are talking about racism, you know, it is kind of painful. It's it's definitely not sure. fun to sit through a lot of white people saying, "Oh my God, I didn't know. I'm so sorry." You know, so yeah, don't have them show up for that. It, but it must you know, be horrible. If you're, <laughs> uh, if you're doing 
um, a workshop on gender, you know, then yeah, Black people should show up to that. So it depends on what aspect of identity that you're working on. Okay. Yeah. In general, the people who are that marginalized identity already know enough about that experience. They already have kind of that experience of, of tuning into what people need and what people um, have experienced. Um, sure. So they, they don't necessarily need to do a workshop on it. No, I never had any doubt that they didn't need a workshop on it. I was just curious if there was a point at like workshop seven or eight that we haven't gotten to where like, I guess there isn't, I guess, is the upshot because what would happen then is you would approach them and say, if you were going to do something and say, would you like to be part of the leadership on this? Would you like to teach on this? And then they would still not be present in the sense of uh, participants, they would be hosting. And so it would still just be no in mm-hmm. the in the participants category. I guess that was where my, my head was at, but that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Saving us some pain. <laughs> sure. Sure. Well, and I liked, I was, uh, I was curious because the alternate option in my mind was that the strategy was just in case they missed that they weren't supposed to be there, you put it in the preparation notes for each individual workshop that you could possibly do to make sure that you re-remembered not to do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which I thought was a fun strategy. It's very important. <laughs> I didn't think of it that way, but yes. <laughs> please do not make them come to your diversity training. <laughs> Just in case you missed it last time, please do not make them come. Fair. Is there anything that you want to touch on that we're missing, Crystal? Um... There's a really fun story I tell, and by fun, I mean not fun at all, um, about going to a play party and the way that I felt um, objectified. And so I think the book does have some suggestions for sex positive spaces for people who, who think that they're already kind of um, progressive and they have you know everything down that they can still cause harm that way. Oh, and I would add, and this is sort of our mantra on the show, thus the name probably, that if you think that you have all this down, then this book is for you. Yep. If you are struggling and you are working hard and this is difficult and you're not sure what to do, obviously the book is also still for you. But if you think that you've got it, then you are just completely wrong. You don't. <laughs> you absolutely don't. So you you need to buy the book regardless yes, if, if you think you've nailed it. Like if you're like, my space is sex positive and it's got all the things it needs. Eh. <laughs> wrong answer yeah i mean you know that's why i wrote the book because i i've met so many uh mostly white people but you know it goes sure. with any type of diversity but you know people who who feel like they're on top of everything and they're great and then i walk into their space and i'm just like i hate it here <laughs> mm-hmm. so i i don't want other people to experience that that doesn't apply for apw i always love apw i'm not apw anymore <laughs> so <laughs> I've heard, yeah. Because it's a poly podcast and we're sex positive here, do you want to go a little further into that? Um, Like you were saying, do you want to tell the not funny, funny story? Yeah. Um, So I'll go ahead and say this was in Asheville. This was a play party where you had sex with people. So it wasn't a BDSM play party. It was a sex play party. Um, And before the sex started, they wanted to have some kind of uh, connection games you know, talking, getting people to know each other. Um, and what they did is they divided the room into men and women. And yikes. It's ugly already. <laughs> I know. That was already rough. All right. Okay. All right. Sorry. They had, they would have one gender close their eyes and then the other people would walk around and say things to them, um, you know, oh, anonymously. So oh. I think. 
the idea was that, oh, you know, they're going to give them compliments. They're going to get them in the mood, whatever. But, you know, here's me, a black woman walking into this space where we're having sex with people and I'm a slut. So I love having sex. I had no problem with doing that. But now I have my eyes closed and men are walking up to me saying, you're exactly what I'm looking for. You're perfect for me. Like, no, 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 no. So I use that as an example of how you can um, unintentionally cause harm, even when you're trying to, um, I don't know what you're trying to do, <laughs> trying to create a space where people feel good about themselves. That is not a flirt. Yeah. Well, for, and for anyone listening, going, having a weird response, like, well, how did you know that that was racist? If you don't know a person at all, and you say they're just what you're looking for, the only features you can be talking about are the the obvious physical features, which is right. included in race, primarily. So that's gonna be what that means. Yeah. <laughs> it's creepy as shit. It was very creepy. Also, yeah. that I feel like would be creepy no matter who you were to hear that, but I feel like even more so knowing the context. Even more so for you, Crystal. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the whole exercise wasn't well thought out. And, you know. <laughs> that's what we're going to go with. <laughs> no, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Well, I think the exercise assumed that there wasn't an issue, like the kind of issue that you were talking about, an issue with tokenization and objectification, and that it was going to be fun the same way that it would be fun if a long-term partner who you knew really well and trusted whispered sweet nothings in your ear. As you said, like getting people in the mood, I think, was the thought. And so these are people coming from a place of comfort going, this is going to be fun. It's going to be sexy. It's going to be interesting and not thinking about all the ways it can be alienating and terrifying. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you have a group that has a majority, you know, you expect the majority to to understand what people are saying and to be in that same kind of flow. But, you know, I was not in the majority, so I wasn't in that flow. And, you know, yeah. It did. It, I still had sex that night, but you know, there's definitely a a way that you interact with people once you you've heard their deepest, darkest desires. <laughs> but they were anonymous, but you still recognized them, or I did not recognize them, but there were oh. enough, you know, there were enough old white men that I could figure yeah. out that, you know, sure, yeah. She's like, no, I know your voice, not fucking you. <laughs> like that's. <laughs> I need you to say this sentence. Okay, it wasn't you. Right. All right, cool. <laughs> Can you say this for me? Yeah, move on, please. <laughs> That's rough. Oh, uh, I can't. Yeah, it just, it creeps. Like I said, it creeps me out being, you know, a white woman. I can't even imagine. Like, yeah. Oh. Yeah. That's why I wrote the book. <laughs> on that sort of note, one of the things that's really interesting is that one of the reasons that objectification is such a problem for men is that when we have done a study where basically we, we went and we got like women to say list 20 things you don't want anyone to say to you. And then we say those things to men, men go, oh, that'd be awesome. I wish someone would say that to me. So most men, if a woman said, you're exactly what I was looking, I'm looking for, would be like, that's the Bing. coolest thing I've ever yeah. heard. Or if they said, you have a really pretty ass, they'd be like, that's the best thing I've ever heard. Mm -hmm. And so part of the problem is that in, in you know, that, that it is, you know, people will say, well, I, I meant it as a compliment. They, they would take it as a compliment. So like, I know that's not an excuse and it's actually on the list of things that uh, you wrote as um, microaggressions is to say, I meant that as a compliment. So people yep. remember that even if you feel like it would be a compliment, if the person tells you it's not, it's just not. Yeah. That's how compliments work. If it upset them, it wasn't a compliment. How you <laughs> meant it aside, that's a particularly huge problem for dealing with 
sexual aggression and in those kinds of spaces that people really need to be aware of, which is just the way that men would like to be treated is nothing, men on average in studies, <laughs> not specific individuals, is nothing like the way that women on average in studies, and this is for groups, so I feel like on average is fine here, because if you have a group of 25 people, the studies are getting more useful. But like, for sure, you know, one of my partners almost only gives me compliments in terms of objectifying statements about specific body parts, and then will often indicate that they feel bad about that. They'll say, oh, I feel bad that I only ever compliment your your body. And I'm like, I'm good. You can just keep all right. day. That's all I ever want to hear is how that that's part of me looks amazing. Me. <laughs> you just keep that up. We're set. So that's for sure problematic because I've never once had a partner who identified as female who said, I want you just to tell me that my body parts are amazing. I don't ever want you to talk about if I'm smart or right. if I'm caring or oh, if I'm well, any of those you things. You haven't I... met me then. That's exactly <laughs> what I have. Ah, right. Well, again, this is not how this is <laughs> statistics don't apply for everyone. I'm sure there are people out there. Yeah. But, but you don't want that from people you don't know, though is the thing. Exactly. Whereas I yeah. still want that even people that I don't know. Like if someone walked up and was like, I saw a bulge <laughs> in your pants and it was amazing. I'd be like, sweet. Like I don't have to date that person, but I'd still feel really good about that. Like I'd be like, Michael's yeah. like, strangers, please tell me my ass is fine. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm into it. I am. I am into it. I, uh, I was a really bad flirt when I was younger. I don't, I just like getting compliments. So even if someone wasn't someone I was interested in, if I, I would flirt because it's fun. <laughs> Even if it's outside of my gender preference, I'll flirt. It's fun. Just... <laughs> it's still a compliment yeah, to you. Yeah, it's still a compliment. Yeah. yeah. They're like, you're hot. I'm like, yeah, I am sweet. I right? feel good about myself. <laughs> so that's also obviously a problem for those sorts of things that when you, when you think things through, you need to not think them through in a vacuum. You need to ask the people that it will be affecting that have those different identities because you can be so good at this and yet still it's something that everyone in that identity likes. And so they just think it's good and it's not good. So you really need to get people on your planning committee or at least bounce it off people. With consent. Yes, right. Okay, so with consent. But other thing I was going to say that I've been seeing a lot that I think is really awesome is this idea of like having like an auditor person where you say, I'm going to pay you not to run this, but just I'm going to send you my plan and you go okay, that's not horrible. Okay, that is horrible. And they, so you're accountable to, you know, BIPOC groups or whatever group it is that, you know, you have a problem marginalizing. But it's a f more affordable because a lot of our communities, we are all, all donations or no money at all or all volunteer. And so then when you tell them you need to pay for services, they go, we, we just can't. And you're like, well, here's an affordable way that even a community that has almost nothing can get can chip in enough to give a few hundred dollars to someone to look over the event plan and go, yeah that that event's got to go obviously i feel like if you're paying someone you're getting consent because it's a contract thing you say will you do this for this exactly. amount of money but if you're not paying them definitely ask consent before you start bouncing ideas off of them but also try and pay them yeah yeah and i've done that for groups you know when it comes to race mostly but also in like the sexuality field um i've been able to help people understand their impact of whatever their event they're planning or language that they're using. Yeah, and that's that's really great. I mean, because especially because a lot of these things are like, don't force your tokens to do X, but also we know that there's a long history of well-meaning white people setting up their own like anti-racial workshops or other things like mm -hmm. that without actually having accountability to anybody. And that just goes incredibly poorly. So don't do that either. The The opt-out is, is paying paying is the opt-out or finding yeah. people who do this advocacy work and who are consenting to participate in the advocacy work if for some reason your organization cannot possibly come up with the money for that yeah experts yes i i'm pretty happy it's about the length of a regular show i feel like we hit all the questions that i had written down 
But does anyone else have anything they want to add or do or? Oh, I just I wanted to ask uh, Crystal about allies. Mm-hmm. If there was anything that you wanted to say about allies, specifically people who jump out of the woodwork and they're like, I'm the ally and I'm fighting for, you know what I mean? You know, those people. Yeah. And, <laughs> I, and yeah, there's a small section in your book about that. But I, I Michael and I talk about it on the show. We've talked about it on the show a couple times about how people should not. <sighs> there's a fine line. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the way I feel about allies is that they um, can get in the way sometimes. So I'm all for people um, who are learning, who understand, you know, privilege and and are wanting to help marginalized people. I understand um, being available to help and, and educating others about it. But if that marginalized person is standing right there, then... <laughs> you don't always need to, to step in. So um, yeah. you have to let the person decide how they're going to handle it. And in the book I talk about, you know, I I get a lot more penalized if I call out something than if a white person calls it out and it's related to race. So when I'm not speaking, I'm weighing my options. I'm, you know, preserving that relationship. I'm doing whatever I can to, to keep going to survive. Um, uh, if a white person is jumping in on a conversation about race, they have a lot less to lose. And there's ways that they can jump in and, and kind of drown out that person um, mm-hmm. and ways that they can, they can create harm by, um, by, by making it more about them and their performance of allyship than making it about that person who, who might be receiving harm. Oh. The best thing I think allies can do is talk to other people like them. So if you're white, talk to other white people and not in front of me and not in front of other people of color. So talk to them, you know, in your downtime when you have space and not in a preachy way of I'm right and you're wrong, but in a way like, oh, I noticed that you did this. And, you know, I I think that there's a better way of doing that. And that I really want to help you understand because I think that you care about people of color and I want you to understand this with me. Well, I think my favorite point from that section was the point when I'm paraphrasing here, but you basically just said allies are just doing what they're supposed to do. When you get really excited about how you're being an ally and standing up for oppressed groups and how wonderful that is. Yeah. No cookies for you. Right. That's just what you're supposed to do. Like, I don't know why you're self-celebrating doing the thing that you were supposed (laughs) to do. That's basic pay, dude. You don't get a bonus for that. You're just doing your job. Yeah. The, the, the whole point of all this is that there is inequality. The inequality is a problem and that people who have the inequality in their favor have to do the work to break down that inequality because they have the position where they have the resources to actually do that work. So when you're doing that work, getting excited about the fact that you're doing that work makes no sense. Um, mm-hmm. It's like getting excited that you didn't punch someone or getting excited that you didn't <laughs> rob someone. Yeah. <laughs> And with the with the times that we're in now with the George Floyd protests and stuff like that, like people are getting really excited, you know, that they're learning this and that they're doing mm-hmm. the work. But they they tend to um, some people tend to um, get caught up in that excitement, you know, and, mm-hmm. and focus on the high of, of, of learning instead of actually like getting down instead of the work being done. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. Well, of course, you echoed this, and I've seen this in every single area that I'm plugged into for those sorts of protests where it's about allyship, where it says, show up, we need you, we need your defense, we need your space, we need your resources. But if someone tries to interview them, relate them to an actual 
expert. member of the community who's doing yeah. this work and who's an expert <laughs> in it and who's here to talk about it. Don't be like, I'm doing such a good job being an ally. It's great. But instead be right. like, you you know who you should talk to is the leaders of the black community who are here leading these rallies. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that goes for any ally group that you're participating in. Well, the other thing that's interesting is, you know, you talked about ways we can stop other people from doing microaggressions and from saying the wrong sort of thing as allies. And it's so important because also in the spaces where this is necessary, the minority situation is concentrated. So in most polyamorous spaces, you know, I live in North Carolina. The area that I'm in is probably, I think it's actually like 46% black because I live in a metro area in North Carolina. And the poly groups that I'm in are like 96% white. So when something goes wrong, It's not just that calling it out is something you should do anyway, but it's that there's so few people to call it out of the group that that work falls on them so hard and so often that it's just exhausting. That if it actually were demographically fair, you should still call it out. But even if you didn't, at least there would be this massive block to take turns calling it out. Yeah. And there are two psychological tricks that this plays into, which are horrible. The first is silent agreement. There is a human psychological feature that if people don't disagree with something, we take it as agreement. Mm-hmm. So when people post something that's bad and harmful and sort of racist and nobody jumps up and says that was racist. Then you're condoning it. Right. That, that's acceptable. That there's a, mm-hmm. It's not actually true that humans condone the things they don't say anything about, but it is true that humans read that it's, as being condoned, which is weird. That's a perception of it. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And so somebody's got to do that. And if you're asking this 4% minority to do it for themselves constantly, that's exhausting. And then the second one is supporter syndrome, which is that statistics have shown that people don't follow one person's voice voice in the wilderness, they follow two. So the first time someone gets up and goes, yeah, they're right. That's when everyone goes, oh, okay, that person was right. Mm. So it's not when the expert or the original person says this is a problem. It's when someone else goes, yeah, it is. So even if the person does call it out for themselves or the minority group does call it out for themselves, you still need to get up and go, they're 100% right. Support them. Stop doing this mm-hmm. to get the buy-in of the rest of the community to follow that person and to lower that load. Yes. Do your work, white people. <laughs> yeah, please. Thank you so much for being here, Crystal. Like we we are so grateful that you came on and shared your book with us. And again, her book can be found wherever books can be found. And we'll put a link to the publisher's website on the podcast when we post it. We will, yes. And it was. It was so great catching up with you. And then, like the, the book is phenomenal. And I'm really glad that uh, we have it as a resource now. So thank you. You're welcome. Great talking to y'all. Whenever we get around to updating our resource page, which hopefully will be in the next few weeks, we have a lot of things to update on our website website we're also going to add it to our resource page so you'll be able to find the link there if you don't find it here or you want to look at resources generally all right thanks for listening oh bye bye (laughs) you have to say bye you can't wave goodbye